The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to God's Word again this morning. For those of you who may just be joining us, uh, visiting or joining us for the first time in a while, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves this morning at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, and this morning we'll look at just the first two verses. You know, our theology reminds us that there's nothing really in uh, a sermon, at least not in my words or the, my, my, the words of any, any pastor or preacher that really convict or, or change our hearts, but it's God's Word itself as it's preached and, and explained and applied that changes our hearts and our lives. But there's some texts of Scripture that I think are just so rich and so powerful and, and so immediately applicable to our lives that sometimes I feel like standing up here, my words would be more likely to dilute the power of Scripture rather than add anything to it. And I think that this morning's verses are such a passage. And so I'd encourage you as we read God's Word, give your attention to these verses and drink deeply from them as we read them and consider them this morning. Let's read together Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words, these words that many of us have heard and know. Would your Spirit apply them again to our lives and give us great assurance and confidence through Christ our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. We have this morning in our passage the analogy of a race, running a race to the Christian life. Many of you know me well enough to know that I love sports, but I have to confess to you this morning that I hate running. You can put a frisbee in front of me, put a ball in front of me, and I'll run forever, but just put on shoes and go for a run has always seemed to me some sort of self-inflicted form of torture. And I was watching with my kids recently the movie Chariots of Fire. Many of you know that movie, and it struck me that I have really never known Eric Little's experience. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Seems to me quite the opposite, personally. But I was, I was down on College Street in Lancaster one time. I was taking my family to the North Museum. And a good friend of mine, who's one of the pastors of Wheatland Presbyterian Church, uh, passed me. He was running at a, a pretty good clip. He, he did look a little tired, um, but I uh, was running. And, and me being the good friend that I am, I thought I would not lose the opportunity to give him a hard time. 
And so I, I shouted across the sidewalk to him. I said, you've got to be doing better than this. I know you're a runner. You look way too tired for a Saturday morning run. And he just waved and laughed. But a few days later, he got the best of me. He, he came up to me and he said, Chris, he said, you said I looked too tired for a Saturday morning run. I want you to know that I was on mile 22 when you passed me. I'm training for a 50-mile trail race. And uh, so you're right, I was a little tired. Every time I read this passage of perseverance and running the race, I think of, of my friend. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, over the past month, we've been looking at what we've called, or many have called, the Hall of Faith. And we've been encouraged by the testimony of men and women of faith who have gone before us and have persevered in their faith not shrinking back no matter what their circumstances to the saving of their souls. But having given us this whole list of encouragements and examples of life of faith, the author of Hebrews now moves to challenge us directly with this exhortation, including himself, as he says, let us now run with endurance the race set before us. The main point of these verses is a call to us, a call to us to run the race of life that God sets before us, the race of faith, whatever our circumstances may be, with persevering faith to the saving of our souls. As we think about this exhortation this morning, I want us to notice three things. I want us to notice our confidence in running this race. I want us to note our instructions for running the race. And I want us to notice our focus while we run the race. Our confidence, our instructions, and our focus. So let's begin by noticing our confidence in running this race in verse 1. Therefore, the author says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Remember that Hebrews is written to men and women who have put their faith in Christ but are now faced with trials and and persecutions, tests of their faith, with the prospect, we could say, of a race of, of holding fast to their faith in the face of temptation, persecution, and the wearying challenges of life. And the author of Hebrews, I think, takes the approach of of a coach as as a team goes into a a contest or a race, and he gives his team a strong reason for confidence as they run this race. And the reason is this, they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses that includes Abel, Enoch, and Noah, that includes Joseph, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob. Isaac, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and a whole list of others who went nameless at the end of Hebrews 11. Now, I think it's important um, to think when the author talks about this being a great cloud of witnesses, we need to remember that there's two senses in which we could call someone a witness. Witnesses could be two types of, of people, and I think it's important for us to know which we're talking about here. On the one hand, a witness can be someone who watches something and sees something. So in an athletic contest, the spectators are witnesses to what happens on that playing field or in that, in that race. Or maybe you think of a wedding where a bride and groom are encouraged to take their vows seriously, knowing that they're taking them before God and these witnesses 
Witnesses are those who watch. They see what happens. And so those who are participating take things seriously. They put forth their best effort because of those watching them, those who witness what happens. On the other hand, a witness can be someone who tells you something to verify its truth. Maybe you think of a courtroom where a judge calls a witness and the witness speaks the truth of something to verify its truth. Maybe we can think of, of, a, of a child uh, who looks to a parent or an older sibling before going on the, the larger roller coaster than they've ever gone before. And they say, are you sure I'm going to come out alive? They want a witness to assure them that it's safe, someone who can tell them, speak to its truth. And I think the basic question is, in this verse, are these, are these heroes of the faith, are they watching us to see what we will do? Or are they speaking to us to assure us of the truth of what Christ has done and of the, uh, of the, 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 uh, the fact that faith can lead us to perseverance. And I think um, as we look at this verse, I think this crowd of Israelites, although commentators wrestle over this a bit, most seem to agree that, that this analogy, although it's a race which might get us thinking of spectators, the key point of the author here is that all of these men and women are witnessing to us of the truth of faith that leads to perseverance. They are those who have finished the race, and they're now encouraging us that this race is worth running. In other words, the key point of this passage is not that all of these people are watching us to see what we will do. The key point of this passage is that all of these men and women are speaking to us, assuring us, saying, we have run this race of faith, and you can too by faith in Jesus Christ. You could maybe imagine this verse uh, as, as a, maybe a coach who brings in last year's champion from the cross-country race who says to the team, I know this race looks challenging, but I did it and so can you by keeping your eyes on the prize. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. You know, where you look at the circumstances of our lives and perhaps we begin to wonder whether we can really go on for another day in faith in Christ as we face the challenges of life or, or the persecution for, the, for, for some. And Hebrews 12.1 gives us this confidence as we run this race of faith. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who have run this race with perseverance through suffering and persecution and the strength that God provides. And they now testify to us that He is faithful. And he does reward those who persevere in faith. Therefore, let us run this race that is set before us with perseverance. That's our confidence, hearing from so many witnesses who have run this race before us. Well, second, notice the the second half of, of verse one here. Notice the instructions for our race. In the middle of this thought, having given us confidence in the great crowd of witnesses, the author then gives a note of instruction for how we can run this race with perseverance. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now, I realize that uh, when it comes to instructions, there's maybe many who say, well, I, I don't really need instructions. Uh, 
people don't really read instructions anymore, right? We just watch YouTube, which will tell us how to fix anything, any way, in any circumstance we have. But you know what instructions are supposed to do. Instructions are supposed to give us the steps we need to accomplish in order to perform a task successfully. If you ignore the instructions, you often pay for it down the road. Some of you are like me, and we've experienced that need to follow the instructions. And in this case, the author gives us these two instructions. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And given the analogy of a, of a race, this, this instruction, these instructions make perfect sense. If you've ever gone to a cross-country race, or if you ever watched the Olympics and watched running events, you know that runners take off any weight that would hinder them. They wear the lightest shoes possible. They take off their warm-ups before the race so that they'll be even lighter uh, weights. Nothing would hinder them. They're careful how they eat. I remember I was the athletic director and and runners would say, well, I'm not drinking any soda or eating any sugar today or tomorrow because I'm getting ready for the race. You throw off anything that would hinder you. You're intentional about how you prepare for a race. I remember several of us on my hall in college mercilessly teasing one of the men on our hall. He was on the cross-country team, and before the last uh, race of the season, he was looking to get rid of any hindrance, and so he decided to shave his leg hair so that he would be even faster. And we assured him that was the last thing he needed to do to, to get faster. But you know the point. You prepare for a race, you lay aside anything that would hinder you or slow you down. And the author here argues that we too are to lay aside any weight or any hindrance that would slow us down in our race of faith. There is some debate, it's worth commenting here, there's some debate amongst commentators on whether the author is intending to, to urge us to lay aside two things or one thing. The question is this, are we supposed to lay aside every weight namely the sin which clings so closely. So that's, we would really be laying aside one thing there. Lay aside every weight, namely the sin which clings closely to us. Or are we supposed to lay aside two things, every weight that would hinder us and the sin that clings so closely? Two things there, that's the key question. And I've if I've looked at commentators, there's certainly um, debate on, on both sides, but as I've looked at, at this passage and, and read the case, I think the best way to read these verses is that these are two instructions, that the first thing we are to lay aside is a broad category, anything whatsoever in life that could possibly hinder us from running a race of faith. That is the first thing we're to to lay down, this this broad category of anything that would hinder our faith and our obedience, followed by a more specific comment, that our sin which clings to us so closely is a specific weight or hindrance that we ought to lay aside. Let's look at, at each of them here. I think when it comes to laying aside any weight that would slow us or hinder our faith and our obedience, I think the biggest question for us is whether we would see weights or hindrances in our race of faith as a problem. And as I've thought about this over and over this week, I think of, of anything in this passage, I've thought about this idea of laying aside any weight, 
perhaps more than any other as I've prepared this week. And I'm convinced that if we examine ourselves, if each one of us were to examine ourselves this morning, we would know that there are areas in our lives that do weigh on our race of faith, on our faith in Christ. There are anxieties and worries that undermine our faith in God's power and God's goodness. There are distractions and entertainments that draw our time and our attention, our emotions, our loves to things of this world rather than things of the world to come. For some of us, these weights are significant issues. For some of us, these weights are like a great dead weight hanging around our neck that keep us from fellowship with God's people, from time in God's word, from joy in our salvation and hinder our running with faith. But other times I think of my heart maybe more like a runner who has sort of a long string of little tiny weights or medium-sized weights wrapped around me. And it's not one thing, but it's any number of small cares and distractions that are wrapped around me, that are weighing me down as I seek to run diligently in faith and obedience. And I think the question for us this morning is this, Do we see these weights that hinder our race of faith as a problem? Sometimes we wonder, we ask ourselves questions like, is it really that important to run the race of faith diligently with all my effort and focus? Or as long as I'm running, even if it's really slowly and really distractedly, is that still okay? Does it really matter how hard I run? as long as I'm running. If I believe in Jesus, does it really matter if my heart is filled with other things? As long as I trust in Christ, as long as I keep running to the finish, does it really matter how hard I try? Does it really matter if I focus on taking away all these hindrances and distractions? These are the kinds of questions I think we can ask ourselves. But Paul's attitude was so different. Do you remember what Paul said in another passage in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about running a race? He says this, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you hear the note of urgency in Paul's words? The note of urgency where he says, we don't just run haphazardly. We don't just say, well, I'm running. As long as I'm running, I'm okay. He says, no, I run disciplining my body, keeping it under control, exercising self-control in all things, running so that I may obtain a prize, lest in my laziness I might preach God's word to others and then be disqualified myself. John Owen argues that this encouragement to lay aside every weight is nothing other than a restatement of Jesus' summons to deny ourselves pick up our cross, and follow him in every area of life. It's a call to self-control. It's a call to hatred of sin. It's a call to active daily effort to put away any weight that might hinder us so that we will run the race with perseverance that God has set before us.
And I think the central question here, the central point, is that our hearts are deceitful. And we can't always judge whether I'm just running slowly and not very well, or whether I'm in danger of stopping running altogether. And the attitude of the one who follows his Savior Christ Jesus is the one who runs with perseverance, laying aside every weight, denying himself and picking up his cross and following Christ, his Savior, in every area of life. That's the one who runs the race of faith that he may finish with the prize, as Paul says. So would we consider any weight that would hold us back? But then Hebrews also calls us to watch out for the sin that clings to us so closely. And I think of uh, running a, a race. Sometimes you run through a wide open field and you can just run without paying any real attention to where you're going. But we're running a race that's surrounded by thorns and bramble bushes. And that is a race surrounded by sins which would cling to us closely. And you know how it is when you run through thorns and brambles. They snag your clothes. They hold you up. They get you stuck. That's the analogy that the author of Hebrews is is using here. That there's sin that clings to us closely. That grabs hold of us and would slow us down in our race. And we must run with careful attention. Watching out for the sin that clings so closely. Now, why does the author of Hebrews say sin which clings so closely? Why does he not just say watching out for sin or laying aside sin? I think part of it is something that you and I know instinctively from our own lives, and that is sin clings to us closely. Sin is not something that's just out there and, you know, we can kind of run without too much notice unless it gets too close. Sin is something in here. The remaining scars of our our original sin, our, our indwelling, inborn sin are still with us. Sin still clings to our hearts and our minds and our lives. Even if we have been saved by Christ, the marks of sin still weigh on us. Sin is close to us. And I think John Owen is again right when he argues that this phrase is particularly referring to our indwelling sin, the remaining sinful desires and tendencies that we were born with, that are maybe almost habitual, that they show up regularly, that we seem to slip into sometimes without even noticing it. And I think this, this call to beware of and to lay aside the indwelling sin that clings to us closely is one of the most pertinent words that we could hear in the midst of our current cultural context. Because today, in our culture, we're in the midst of a generation that urges us to accept who we are and to demand that others accept who we are as well. And so our weaknesses in sinfulness actually become accepted parts of our identity. That's the way our culture encourages us to think about ourselves. That's just who you are. Don't listen to people who lay guilt and shame on you for who you are. And so we start to hear voices which say, you know, I know I shouldn't get angry, but I've just never been a very patient person. I know I shouldn't procrastinate, but I'm just a laid-back person. I know lust is wrong, but I can't help being a guy I know I'm controlling, but it's just my military background. I know my work habits are hurting my family, but I've just always cared about excellence. And we could put any other things in here, but you know how the voices say, it's just who I am. 
This is part of how I respond. I can't help it. How can God expect me to change something that is just so close to who I am? That's how our culture urges us to think. Scripture contradicts this. Scripture says that sin does not have to be chosen to be a sin. On the contrary, some of our greatest areas of struggle with sin are precisely those areas that we respond to naturally. They're unchosen desires, responses that just come out and yet are contrary to Scripture and to God's will. And it is those desires that God wants to confront and change by His Spirit. It's precisely these unchosen, closely clinging desires, responses that are sinful that just come out of our hearts and our lives that Hebrews warns us to pay attention to. It warns us to watch out for. It warns us to lay them aside in the power of the Spirit, not demanding us to be perfect, but demanding that we never accept that sin, but hate it and work to lay it aside in the power of the Spirit so that we might run this race with perseverance. You know, all along, one of the key themes of Hebrews has been this reminder that allowing any sin to continue unchecked is dangerous to our walk with Christ. And while it is perfectly true that we all still bear the marks of our sinfulness and none of us will be perfect, we are called to repent of sin, to hate sin, to fight against sin. And we dare not give any sin, no matter how small or how natural to our lives, any legroom in our life. Because as Hebrews has said over and over and over again, our hearts are easily deceived. And we are not necessarily aware when we have allowed sin a foothold in our hearts that could lead us away from God. Chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, the author comes back to this warning again and again. And so here are instructions for this race. How can we run the race with perseverance? The instructions are to lay aside any weight and the sin which clings so closely that we might run this race with perseverance. These are our instructions for running the race of faith. Well, we've seen our confidence in this race, assured by the testimony of a great cloud of witnesses that it is worth persevering in faith. We've seen our instructions for the race. Look with me now in our remaining time at our focus while running the race. The author gives us verse 2, calling for us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. My dad was a long-distance runner in high school and throughout life continued to run. And I remember him telling me once that when he was running a long-distance race, one of the biggest obstacles to him running his best was letting his mind wander and get distracted from his focus in the race. If he got distracted just looking at things around him or thinking about something else, it would slow him down. And so one of his strategies was while he was running, he would pick an object far in the distance and he would focus on that object or landmark and run hard to it. And when he got to it, he'd pick a new object or a new landmark further in the distance and he'd run to that. And the point is, we, if our minds wander, we can lose our focus on running the race. And so we need something to focus on in the course of our race. And the author of Hebrews gives a similar picture here, saying that while we run this race, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In our lifelong race of faith, we are also in danger if our minds are constantly wandering. We are also in danger if we're distracted by the things of the world around us. And so the author of Hebrews gives us this focus. Day in and day out, look to Jesus. And he gives us several reasons for why we're to look to Jesus. One, we're to look to Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. What a great reminder. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, the word founder here is kind of a tricky word. It's not a common word that's used. It's translated, if you have other translations, in a variety of ways. Founder, pioneer, author. Maybe you memorized this verse in another version and you recognize one of those words. It's uh, been translated by several commentators I've read as trailblazer. Trailblazer. And I think maybe the idea, you could perhaps say that Jesus wrote the book on how to run the race of faith. He did it first. Jesus is the one who climactically ran the race of faith with perseverance, blazing the trail, pioneering the trail, founding the trail for how to run the race with perseverance. After all the cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, I think this verse is saying, yes, all of those men and women are witnesses to running the race of faith, But it's Jesus who is the preeminent example for us to follow. He ran it first, and any ability on our part to run this race of faith comes because he did it first. He was the founder, the pioneer, the author, the trailblazer of the race of faith. And Jesus, of course, is not just the founder or trailblazer. He's not just the example. He's not just the one who did it first. He's also the perfecter of our faith meaning he's also the one who makes it possible for us to run the race of faith with perseverance. I think if you combine founder and perfecter, you could say that Jesus is like the marathon runner who first runs the race showing us how to do it, then doubles back and enables us to run it by his strength after him. Jesus did it first. We follow his example, and he now perfects our faith, enables us, encourages us, and ensures that we will finish the course as well. And so we look to Jesus because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We also look to Jesus, though, because he endured the cross, despising its shame, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. You know how a prize that's set before you keeps you going in the face of difficulty. Maybe you were a teen who had your driver's license dependent on your grades. And so all throughout the semester, you work hard not just on one test, but every test all semester long, knowing that your freedom to drive is the prize waiting at the end. Maybe you're a salesperson who has a bonus at the end of the year dependent upon your efforts and you work hard day in and day out for the prize that's set before you. Well, even more, we could look to Jesus. Jesus endured physical pain and he endured even greater relational pain as he was rejected by his Father on the cross and he ignored its shame. You know, in our day, I think we tend to focus on the pain of the cross because we hate pain and our culture hates suffering and pain so deeply. 
But in the first century, the shame of the cross would have been an even greater obstacle to the cross. It was only applied to the worst criminals, and public crucifixion was considered the most accursed and most shameful death. Some of you know the name Cicero, a Roman orator, and he was accusing the uh, governor of Sicily, and the greatest crime he had committed was subjecting a Roman citizen to crucifixion, the most shameful act that could be committed against a person. Jesus despised that shame. He endured that pain. How? Because of the joy that was set before him. Because of resurrection life, restoration to his Father, and eternal joy with millions of his redeemed people with him. That is the joy set before Christ that enabled him to endure the pain and despise the shame. And so we're to look to Jesus so that we also could endure pain and hardship and despise shame or humiliation or anything else that Satan and his minions might throw our way. We can despise that and endure that like Jesus did for the joy set before us. Because in Christ, we've been given this joyful hope. We've been given the hope of resurrection life with him. We've been given the hope of restoration to God as our Father with Him. We've been given the hope of eternal joy in heaven with Him. And so the same joys set before Christ, we are now invited to look to those joys in Christ and with Christ by faith so that we can also endure pain and shame. And then the author gives us another reason to look to Jesus. He says, look to Jesus because right now, at this very minute, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And this is the climactic encouragement to believers to run their race with perseverance. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And he is the ultimate guarantee that God always keeps his promises. His covenant promises are coming about. You remember that it was the psalmist Back in the Psalms who said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord is at your right hands. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Psalm 110, that's been fulfilled. Jesus is now at the right hand of God. And not only that, but Jesus seated on the right throne at the right hand of the Father is a further promise to us. Because in in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, if we endure with him, or sorry, excuse me, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. And so the promise is held out to us. If we endure, if we keep running with perseverance, we too will reign with Christ and the right hand of God. Maybe you remember Stephen. Stephen, that first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7. He had given testimony to Christ. And right before the Pharisees are about to take him out to stone him to death, what does God give him? He gives him a vision of Jesus in all his glory, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the vision that enables us to endure, knowing that Christ is crowned and seated at the right hand of God. And so we too can endure hardships, knowing that Jesus, right now, is at the right hand of the throne of God. And if we endure like Christ endured, we will join him there at his throne at the right hand of God. Well, I may hate running, it's true. But if we talk about running a race of perseverance, the hardships and the pain of life, 
will threaten to overwhelm us. They will be far greater than the pain of running a mile or five. And we may be tempted, faced with the pain and hardships of life, to give up this race. For others, we may be distracted from our race. We don't feel overwhelmed, perhaps, but we're running slower and slower as we're enjoying the sights of this world. And in either case, we need the comfort to encourage us in our race, and we need the reminder to refocus on our race. And that's what the author of Hebrews gives us in these verses. The confidence for our race from the testimony of many witnesses who have run it before us. The instructions for our race in calling us to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely. And the focus for our race, calling us to look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who endured pain, despising the shame of the cross for the joy set before him, and who now sits at the throne at the right hand of God, awaiting his people. And so, brothers and sisters, may we run the race with perseverance that's set before us. That's the strength-giving encouragement and call from God our Savior this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses. These verses which speak so plainly, so clearly, and so powerfully. I pray that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in this morning, I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened and built up in our race of faith. Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, may we lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely entangles May we run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who endured shame and the pain of the cross for the joy set before him, and is now at the right hand of the throne of God, awaiting us, awaiting his people, if we too will run with faith this race set before us. We thank you for Christ. Amen.